Russia's military assault on Ukraine triggers cybersecurity warnings, and the Conti Ransomware Group has a new trick up its sleeve. These stories and more on this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Anna Delaney. It has been described as one of the darkest hours for Europe since World War II. Russian forces have now launched a military assault on Ukraine, with reports of missile strikes and explosions in multiple cities, including the capital, Kiev. Experts say Russia appears to be attempting a full military takeover of the country. As a result, the likelihood of nation-state cyber attacks or collateral damage continues to escalate. Well, with me to discuss is Dan Gunderman, staff writer for the ISMG News Desk, and Tony Morbin, executive news editor for the EU. Good to see you both. Dan, starting with you, now that Russia has invaded Ukraine, can you bring us up to speed with the latest activity? Yeah, so first off, thanks for having me on, Anna. Again, to echo what you were saying, this is a historic and devastating day and news that we're seeing unfold here in Ukraine. And so for context, because this is now hybrid warfare, obviously, as you mentioned, we're seeing a full-on invasion of the former Soviet state. And uh, Putin has advanced troops through the disputed Donbass region and from Belarus in the north and from the Russia-held Crimea in the south. And overnight, we heard basically what is a war speech from President Putin. And immediately after that, the Russians began shelling Ukraine's capital city of Kiev. So all of this uh, was preceded, Anna, by a DDoS attack on several Ukrainian ministries, including foreign affairs, the cabinet of ministers, and the Rada, which is the country's parliament. So reports had indicated that some Ukrainian banks had been affected by the outage and wiper malware had been detected on Ukrainian systems as well. And, you know, these efforts followed a similar site takedown that occurred last week, which was later attributed to Russia's intelligence agency, the GRU. It was a denial of service attack that affected Ukraine's defense ministry, uh, which oversees its military, and per other reports, several banks, so a similar um, assault there. And just weeks before that, obviously, Ukrainian sites were hacked and defaced with suspected Russian hackers hijacking dozens of sites and planning dire messaging and propaganda along the lines of fear the worst. So the timing and scope of these cyber attacks were nearly spot on to what was hinted by U.S. intelligence on Wednesday. And the EU is now promising harsher sanctions on Moscow, and it's activated its cyber rapid response team to combat Russian cyber attacks. And that includes member states from Croatia, Estonia, Lithuania, the Netherlands, Poland, and Romania. So around 10 seemingly high-ranking cyber military experts were to be dispatched to Ukraine to hunt for vulnerabilities and provide additional technical equipment and software. But obviously with airstrikes and ground force movement now, it's unclear if the response team will be physically located in Ukraine or working remotely, serving as a line of Ukrainian defense. So, And on Wednesday, I wrote up a piece on Ukrainian cyber officials reportedly preparing to wipe their servers and move critical data away from its centralized IT systems, which are based in Kiev, which have been for some years now since the 2014 initial invasion. So plans were in place. Officials told the press to rebuild Ukraine's IT networks from fallback positions. So again, rapid escalation here, and it's moving certainly very fast. A lot happening. Tony, I think some political context might be useful here. What is the Kremlin's goal? It sounds like they want to go back to Kievian Rus, which is, you know, sort of between sort of 9th and 13th century. Black Sea to the White Sea was one territory, but that included the Baltics. On the other hand, I don't think Putin plans to get rid of Siberia, which wasn't part of Kievian Rus. So it's, it's a pretty selective history. More recently, 
2014, you might remember there was the Orange Revolution where Viktor Yanukovych, who was a pro-Russian leader in Ukraine, was overthrown in a sort of street demonstrations, really. And then they got fairer elections. They already had elections, but they were kind of a, a little bit suspect. With the fair elections, people actually chose to move away from Russia. And in 2019, they actually changed the constitution to say that the uh, aspiration was explicitly to join the EU and to join NATO. Both of these things, Putin clearly doesn't want. He's seen the countries all around his border become either NATO members or certainly, apart from Belarus, no longer on his side. And he's fearful. Plus, there is the cultural justification in the back there. But Ukraine has its own language, Ukraine but they also, about half the population also speak Russian. And as with the Baltics, there's also been migration from Russians to other countries under the Soviet Union. So the Black Sea down by Odessa, Crimea were popular sort of resorts. People went down there, the coal mining in the Donbass. So there's a lot of Russian speakers, but that doesn't mean to say that they're necessarily pro-Russian, but they are the constituency that are most likely to be pro-Russian. And the Ukrainian speakers did suffer under Russia and then not keen to go back under Russian rule. So it's going to be conflict. But there's also the fear that the other Baltic states, in the same way as Ukraine was part of the uh, sphere of influence, the Baltic states are in the same situation in that respect. But the big difference is they are already members of NATO. Helpful and excellent overview, Tony. Thank you. So Dan, back to today, how has the US responded? You've mentioned some of the EU's latest cybersecurity response measures, but what about the US? Yeah, equally important question, Anna. And so obviously the U.S. has certainly been tracking every movement as Putin encircles and, you know, ultimately drives into Ukraine. And as Tony mentioned, foreign policy experts, um, you know, are fearing that, you know, he may intend to reconquer former Soviet territory. So U.S. President Joe Biden late Wednesday denounced the move to use force. He will address the nation on these developments. And U.S. intelligence, as I mentioned, had pointed to potentially crippling cyber attacks hitting Ukraine before tanks crossed the border. And then we saw that unfold. So many are now warning of further cyber strikes to destabilize Vladimir Zelensky's government. And, you know, U.S. officials are warning of potential strikes against the U.S. and its allies should it further aid Ukraine's defensive efforts. And of course, this comes after Russia-linked hackers carried out some of the most significant cyber attacks on U.S. soil in the past few years with solar winds and colonial pipeline, just to name a few. And so there's been a string of activity from the White House. Biden signed an executive order earlier this week barring investment into the disputed territory. He announced the first tranche of sanctions against Moscow with uh, barring two sizable Russian banks from Western finance. The Secretary of State canceled the meeting with the Russian foreign minister. And, you know, altogether, I think cyber officials really appear to fear the worst here with widespread attacks on the electric grid in Ukraine, perhaps targeted attacks on the neighboring Baltic states, as Tony had mentioned, or perhaps a repeat of supply chain attacks in the U.S., as I, as I just alluded to. So, he previously denounced, this is Biden, denounced, you know, similar asymmetric attacks, including hits on this uh, critical infrastructure and on NATO allies, especially pertaining to this crisis. So we'll see as this unfolds. Yes. And searching through Twitter earlier, I came across Christopher Wiley's tweet. He was, of course, the person who blew the whistle on Cambridge Analytica. He said that we need to prepare for cyber escalation by Russia on US, UK and EU targets. In the cyber domain, this conflict may not be contained to Ukraine. ISPs, banks, companies, utilities, transit, social media, they all become targets of Russian cyber attacks. Tony, 
with your cyber warfare thinking hat on, how might this conflict change the rules of cyber warfare, do you think? I think the thing is that the rules, such as they are, which uh, essentially the Tallinn manual, which uh, came out of the uh, Estonia attack in the uh, CCDCOE, the Tallinn manual more or less says that if a cyber attack causes physical results, where, say, people uh, die, then you can have a kinetic response. So effectively, if you have a kinetic impact from cyber attacks, you can then have a kinetic response. Now, that might be the manual, but when war comes along, manuals go out the window and people very often, particularly if it's not been agreed by all parties, they will make their own rules up. So there's what happens in Ukraine, there's what happens in the Baltics, and then there's what happens to the Allies. I think the other thing is that you don't actually need to have a, a direct kinetic attack on, say, operational technology. You can hit IT, as was the case with the Colonial Pipeline, that then has a disruptive effect on the OT. So you can have a spin-off effect there, and then it, it muddies the water about, was this therefore a kinetic attack? Have you breached the threshold at which you can then have a kinetic response? So I'm afraid we're in very, very muddy waters because there are no rules of the game that are agreed by all parties. Concerning times. Dan, what's your advice to organisations as to how they can become less of a target for potential cyber attacks? Yeah, another great question. And from the language we've seen come from CISA and the NCSE in the UK, ultimately, it's really going back to the basics and making sure you have these boxes checked. And that's what we're seeing in CISA's Shields Up warning that they issued last week. That's what we're seeing similar language come out of the UK, but ultimately reminding security teams to patch regularly, verify access controls, ensure existing defenses are in fact effective, monitor key logs, antivirus logs, review backups, implement and practice incident response plans, ensure your organization can probably reduce and respond to phishing lures, ensure there is a comprehensive understanding of the level of privilege extended into the systems, having ready access to the free resources that these federal agencies are providing, and ultimately briefing the wider organization on security posture and what can be done to improve cyber hygiene altogether. So we're seeing a lot of repeat in terms of the rhetoric we're seeing on basic steps. Well, Dan, Tony, thank you so much for sharing your perspectives. I do appreciate it. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. In a curious case of underworld M&A, it seems that TrickBot malware is under new management. Its development team appear to have been acquired by the Conti ransomware gang. Matthew Schwartz, executive editor of Data Breach Today in Europe, investigates. The Conti ransomware operation has a few tricks up its sleeve. Since first appearing at the end of 2019, Conti continues to be one of the most damaging ransomware strains being used by criminals to shake down organizations. Conti's longevity is notable, owing to many rivals having disappeared, or at least been forced to regroup and rebrand. Key to Conti's success has been a close relationship with the TrickBot malware operation. So says New York-based threat intelligence firm Advanced Intelligence which says that Conti first began working with TrickBot a year ago. This arrangement, which was reportedly an exclusive one, allowed Conti to use TrickBot infections to gain initial access to victims' networks. Conti has been relying so heavily on TrickBot that it seems to have essentially taken over the operation. That includes 
hiring top developers from TrickBot and now maintaining some formerly TrickBot-only tools, such as the Bazaar backdoor malware. The success of this relationship can be measured not just in Conti's longevity, but profits. Security experts say Conti-wielding attackers have likely received cryptocurrency ransom payments worth hundreds of millions of dollars. As of December 2021, the average Conti ransomware demand was more than $650,000. And experts say that Conti's biggest single known hole to date was a $34 million ransom payment. While some other big-name ransomware operations have disappeared since last summer, Conti lives on. Experts say this seems to be due, in part, to its TrickBot ties. The operation largely eschewing the use of third-party initial access brokers, as well as Conti being run as a tightly controlled group, including training its own relatively low-paid network penetration specialists. Many ransomware groups' troubles began last May. That's when the seemingly nonstop spate of ransomware attacks started hitting larger targets, provoking a national security response from the West. Conti, however, has continued seemingly unimpeded despite it making missteps. Last May, Conti ransomware infected systems at Ireland's health services executive. So much for many ransomware groups' vows to never hit healthcare. Conti did give a decryptor to the Irish government without charge, but the damage was already done. Patient care in the country was disrupted for months. Subsequently, the Irish government, backed by Interpol, began directly targeting Conti's infrastructure for disruption. And yet Conti has survived. I spoke with Yelisey Bugoslavsky, head of research at Advanced Intelligence, about how Conti has managed to continue. He said there have been several key steps the group made in the aftermath of its disastrous Ireland attack. For starters, Conti reorganized, splitting into several semi-autonomous groups. He says these groups do ally with each other and support each other, but they have also got different infrastructure, especially for anything tied to communications. He says this redundancy is an attempt by the groups to defend against the entire operation being compromised, for example, by law enforcement. In addition, after the attack on Ireland, he says Conti became more focused on internal security audits and began proactively changing its server infrastructure every few months. Again, Conti's ability to keep going speaks to the effectiveness of its overall business strategy. And this speaks to the difficulty of eradicating ransomware. As law enforcement responds, criminal syndicates continue to innovate, many of them, as we can see with Conti, quite successfully. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. And finally, have you listened to the latest episode of The Ransomware Files? The fifth installment of this brilliant podcast series revisits one of the largest ransomware attacks ever in the U.S., which struck 23 cities across Texas in August 2019. The report reveals never-before-public details about the attack, describes how the state recovered so quickly, and explores the human cost of ransomware. It's the brainchild of ISMG's Jeremy Kirk and is well worth your time. Here's a taster. 
August 16th, 2019 was the day the Russians messed with Texas. 23 cities across the state were struck by one of the largest ever ransomware attacks to hit the United States. The attack started after a small managed service provider's remote access software was compromised. But while the cities recovered quickly, the managed service provider sustained irreparable damage. It shows the devastating consequences ransomware can have on a small business. Rick Myers and his wife Diana run the MSP, which is called TSM Consulting and is based in Rockwall, Texas. You know, well, we lost business. Uh, we lost customers because of it. And anytime you lose a customer's data, you, you stand a good chance of losing their business. It's taken a toll on me that I don't know that I can recover from. The cities were infected with the R-Evil or Sodi Nokibi ransomware. The attackers used TSM's Screen Connect remote access software to spread the ransomware. It's suspected that the attackers captured a technician's login credentials for Screen Connect. The cities couldn't pay payroll, citizens couldn't pay bills, and critical public safety records couldn't be accessed. But Texas had been planning and practicing recovering from a major cybersecurity incident for several years. And Governor Greg Abbott declared the incident a statewide disaster, which was the first such declaration. Due to the state's preparation, the cities were up and at least partially running in just eight days. It was a massive effort from Texas state agencies, Texas A&M University, the National Guard, and vendors. Texas refused to pay the $2.5 million ransom. Andy Bennett is former Deputy Chief Information Security Officer for the Texas Department of Information Resources. He's now Vice President of Technology and Chief Information Security Officer with Apollo Information Systems. There was a veritable army assigned to this incident. We had folks out in the field, a ton, a ton of folks out in the field. Uh, we had a ton of folks there in the in the security operations center. We, you know, we had analysts running from from city to city. We had a help desk set up overnight, taking probably hundreds, if not thousands of calls. We used any resource we could get our hands on. Texas also caught a couple of lucky breaks. The attackers first tried to use a PowerShell script to deploy the ransomware, but it turned out to be buggy. So they then turned to using TSM Screen Connect, but they went too far and accidentally encrypted the Screen Connect server itself that they'd been using. They really messed up. But for Texas, it thankfully meant the infections would stop spreading. And in November 2021, an unexpected development occurred. U.S. prosecutors announced an indictment against a Russian man allegedly responsible for the attack against Texas. The indictment marked an escalating effort by the U.S. government to hold ransomware attackers accountable. It also helped close the loop for Texas, which had kept mum on a lot of the details of the attack as the FBI continued to investigate. Here's Mandy Crawford, the state's chief information officer. What we had been saying all along, because we you know, work closely with our own you know, Department of Public Safety and, of course, the FBI um, throughout the event, and, 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 and there was stuff that we just couldn't share throughout the process. And you know, kind of our standing line is, because we hope they catch the bad guys, right? <laughs> That's why we, we want to keep this because maybe they'll catch the bad guy. Yes. And so when they actually did at least name the bad guy, <laughs> um, that that was, you know, it was really, it was gratifying um, because so often these things um, you, you don't know uh, or you do know who did it, but you you can't put a name or that there's not even a sort of possibility of, 
of some sort of justice. So uh, it was a good feeling. If you're interested in hearing more about this story, please have a search for the Ransomware Files podcast on your podcasting platform of choice. This episode is also available on ISMG's websites. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. That's it from the ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Anna Delaney. Until next time. Thank you.